uh, hopefully everyone has an outline. Is there anyone who does not have an outline? Uh, we are, you'll follow a lot easier with an outline. We're continuing a series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. This is element four, part D. So we've been on element four for uh, four weeks. And element four is all about the historical narrative of Israel. In the first three weeks of the historical narrative part, we went through every gospel presentation in the book of Acts in some detail and saw that there are zero gospel presentations that do not emphasize the history of Israel, uh, how the Lord Jesus Christ is, in fact, the fulfillment of all of Israel's history, and how God is doing a new thing with a new people in Jesus Christ. So um, what we're going to look at today is why did they do that? Why is it when uh, I never heard a gospel presentation in my 41 years of being a Christian in America, I've never heard a gospel presentation that has much to do with the history of Israel, uh, nor did the idea even occur to me till I was 35 years into a focus of studies, uh, two and three hours a day on what are the missing elements in, in American Christianity over biblical Christianity. I really didn't discover that element till about 35 years into that quest. And so uh, why, why do we... Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes you have to find stuff. No one else is saying it. You just have to find it from the depths of the scriptures. Now, since that time, of course, as you know, we mentioned uh, there is a book by a, a well-known evangelical by, uh, seminary teacher named Scott McKnight called The King Jesus Gospel. And he does cover uh, this, uh, although he will, because he's coming from an evangelical tradition where he takes for granted that the gospel, that the Bible is accurate history, he'll say the story of Israel over and over and over again. I take a little objection just to the point of saying the historical narrative or the historical story, simply because liberals and people who don't believe the God, that the Bible has any historical accuracy, that don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, that just believe it's about the myths or the stories— they have been saying that Israel is a story and the Bible's a story since the 1860s. So I think we do need to, to realize that's somewhat of a slippery slope. If we want to hold to biblical inerrancy and infallibility, then we need to, and we want to say that a sovereign God is so great that in his eternal purposes, he actually foreordained to use the events of history to tell his you know, theology, who he is, to tell his story. Uh, I think it's important that we emphasize that it's a historically accurate, infallible, inerrant story. So that's why I use the words historical narrative of Israel. Scott McKnight's book, he'll just call it the story of Israel and the story of Jesus. I just don't want to give quarter to the possibility that it's just a fictional story. That's all. Uh, because that would ruin everything. The Bible... Biblical faith rests on the fact that we're the only faith in the world that believes that God created time-space continuum, that he created history, that he had an eternal decree, he knew the end from the beginning, he foreordained the end from the beginning, and he is working in the events of history to reveal his, himself progressively to man. Therefore, historical accuracy 
Without it, you have no biblical faith. Uh, just on one point in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul argues, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then we're dead in our sins. We're, our faith is worthless. If there's no historical accuracy to, to what we're talking about, if it's just a story, uh, liberal Christians began in the 1860s to say, well, we don't know if Jesus raised, actually was raised from the dead, uh, because we have anti-supernatural biases, although they wouldn't have recognized that part nor said it, <laughs> we, uh, we assume that these things couldn't happen. So what's important is that somehow the disciples believed Jesus rose from the dead. They had resurrection faith occur to them, even though it wasn't actually rooted in a real resurrection. <laughs> and I'm like, when I first heard those things, I wondered if maybe some psychedelic drugs or something was involved, but... Uh, but no, it's actual presuppositions that lead people to this kind of thinking. And so it is very, very, very important as biblical Christians to understand that we have a God who created time, space, continuum. He acted in history to create a real Adam and Eve. He acted in history to call Abraham. He acted in history over and over and over again in the ministries of Moses, Elijah, and so forth all the way to his greatest act in history, uh, the first event or the first coming of Jesus Christ. So uh, with that in mind, I'm not going to review, look at Roman numeral two. Those are all the scriptures condensed and some of the scriptures that those gospels pro presentations uh, mention. Uh, however, there are outlines in the back that say, uh, Element 4, A, B, and C, historical narrative of Jesus. And I think they say something after that, like the book of Acts or something like that. Why, so, or what the scriptures say or something like that. If you want to uh, get into that more and just trace through the book of Acts presentations and see how they use the Old Testament, we did three weeks on that. The outlines are still available. The podcasts are on our website. And uh, I hope you'll enjoy that. So, uh, in the middle there, I have some in, in bold print, um, some things that we need to consider here. Uh, one is in, that comes out of the gospel presentation in Acts chapter 10 with Peter and Cornelius. And it's, uh, I simply say this, the Holy Spirit will never show you anything contrary to the scriptures. However, the Holy Spirit will show you many scriptural things contrary to our previous wrong understandings of Scripture. Now, that's very, very important, because one of the things that happens in our day and age is that we assume because there's a, a Bible-believing Christianity that has developed over the last 150 years, that everything we think and everything Scripture says, we have it accurately, we have it correctly, and we have it, there's nothing yet to be rediscovered. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth, and if you really study the theology of the Reformation and the Puritans, that was one of their main points. God is restoring some things to us from the ancient church, and there is much yet to be rediscovered. We must study. We must learn how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We must yield to the Holy Spirit. We must seek God for him to uncover uh, truth. There's one of the most famous speeches along this line is when the Puritans uh, who, uh, the 120 or so that were able to fit on the Mayflower Compact, or the Mayflower, uh, that eventually wrote the Mayflower Compact, um, as, they were as they were departing England, they had a congregation of about 400 people. 
They could not all afford to go, nor did they have ships to go. So a con- the congregation of around 280 of them stayed back. And it was decided that the senior pastor should stay back with them. And they sent William Bruce- Brewster, one of the other elders, with, uh, with the Mayflower. But the senior pastor gave a, a very uh, inspiring speech about remember how we have practiced Christianity is not the standard. Our traditions are not the standard. God has yet to show us much more as we continue to delve into the scripture and, and learn how to walk by his power. And so that is a huge, uh, huge thing. And in Acts 10, we see exactly that. We see Peter, who has grown up in northern uh, Galilee, in, in uh, Capernaum, he has therefore been from a tradition that he would have memorized the first five books of the Bible at a minimum by the time he was 12, and many significant other portions of what we now call the Old Testament, which is actually better called the Hebrew Scriptures, and that he would have um, had a great deal of background in, in that sort of knowledge. Now, uh, then he's discipled by Jesus, and Jesus is constantly recognizing people who aren't Jewish-born, uh, that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit has given faith, and he's calling them daughters of Abraham and sons of Abraham, like the Syrophoenician woman who said at first he thought she was not an Israelite, and he, and he says, you know, it's not good to take the children's bread and give it to dogs, which means someone outside the covenant doesn't mean like we mean in modern times. Uh, very derogatory thing in modern times. Um, and when she answers in faith, he realizes that she's a daughter of Abraham and grants her request. So he didn't change what he meant the first time that deliverance is only for the children of God. He recognized that God has made her a daughter of Abraham, a child of God. Because she responded in faith, and it was always those who were of faith that were the children of God. No one was ever saved by works. So that's important. Peter, then uh, we are several years into the book of the Acts after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and Peter has to see three visions on the roof of Simon the Tanner while he's fasting uh, that the Holy Spirit gives him, and he has to hear the testimony of the, of the servants that Cornelius sent to, to get him before he starts to realize, oh my goodness, a major idea that's actually covered in more than 1,000 places in the Old Testament, I was completely missing up till now because of my religious traditions and prejudices. So he actually rethinks his whole understanding of Scripture in the 30-mile journey to Joppa, and he realizes, he starts with, you know, Cornelius saying, I realize now, and he begins to, to re-preach the Old Testament with his new understanding that it was always God's intention, Genesis 12, 1, to bless all the nations through the sons of Abraham, and that the gospel is for everyone. So that's really important. The Holy Spirit will never show you anything contrary to Scripture. However, I hope that you will have hundreds of experiences in your Christian life where God will show you many scriptural things that are contrary to our previous wrong understandings of Scripture. That's really, really important. Now, 
With that, I also want to point out, because this is a segue in today's material, in Acts 17, that's also in bold there under Roman numeral 2, Paul, when he's, uh, Acts 17 gives us Paul in three cities, Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. Now, uh, interestingly, it says that the Bereans were more noble-minded because they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. It's important to understand that Paul's pattern was he would go to the synagogue, which means with the word, starting with the dispersion of Israel in 522 B.C. and in ongoing dispersions, the Jewish people were spread throughout the Roman Empire. Probably about 10% of Jews lived in Palestine during the day of Jesus. And there were synagogues, which is actually kind of the four, four model, the pre-model, um, what, what do you call it in, in this prototype of the church. Thank you. So um, this Paul and Paul and his companions, uh, first first uh, on the first missionary journey, Barnabas and so forth, second one Silas, they go to the synagogue first, and they proclaim to godly people who really, really, really know the scriptures a lot more than we would know them in contemporary standards. Not even most Bible Bible teachers that are seminary teachers would know the scriptures the way the ancient people took the scriptures seriously as people of the book. So he's telling a bunch of people who take the scriptures very seriously, who gather every week to discuss and debate the scriptures. He's, uh, he's telling them, things that, that uh, the scriptures have said all along that they were missing. And it says, some, therefore, everywhere he goes, some believed, and some, the wording is, refused to believe. It's never a matter of whether there's enough evidence or not. It's always a matter of whether you're willing to go where God is showing you. And when you have certain kinds of pride, certain kinds of rebellion, certain kinds of things in your heart that aren't fully converted to God, Jesus said, if anyone's willing to do my will, John chapter 7, he'll know the teaching that is from God. It's never the lack of truth. It's the lack of willingness. So uh, the Bereans, it says, were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians because they searched the scriptures daily to see if those these things were so. That's always what we ask of anyone. And then when we first meet them, we have been on a 45-year quest to say, why is American Christianity not the salt of the earth? Why is it not stopping corruption? Why is it not the light of the world? Why are the people in darkness not searching out us for light? Why do we have, in many cases, just as troubled of marriages, children, finances, and every other, uh, why are we not seeing a Christianity that is really what Jesus calls abundant life? And that's, that's really kind of been our quest here, and that's what, you know, Grace Christian Fellowship's uh, emphasis is all about. So Paul, when he's in Athens, the third city in Acts 17, he recounts Israel's history. Now, he doesn't quote... Um, he doesn't quote the Old Testament as precisely as he does in the synagogues because he's talking to a in the marketplace in Athens. He's talking to a Gentile audience that has no knowledge of the scriptures. But what's important to see 
is even though he's not quoting it verbatim, he is clearly teaching Old Testament scriptural ideas. And here's four of them. Just, and I'm not sure I didn't miss a few. I was in a hurry. Um, he recounts Israel's history. He tells about creation. He explains that all people come from one blood, a very, very important uh, concept, because if there's no first Adam, then there can't be a last Adam. And the Christian doctrine that there's no longer male or female, uh, slave or free, Gentile or, <clears throat> or Jew, that everyone is one in Christ is negated if we, didn't, if we don't all come from one prototype parents, progenical progenitor parents. We, we're all related. You're sitting next to your relative. Might be pretty distant by now, but they're still, uh, they still have the DNA. And that's why I got to do an interracial marriage this summer. I love doing interracial marriages because you always get a few prejudiced people who don't like it. <laughs> and I do have an ornery streak, I admit. And so I uh, first interracial marriage I ever did uh, was a white guy from Cleveland whose parents were Christians and so forth, marrying an, uh, a very on fire young lady from Nigeria. And uh, the parents called me up and said, how can you allow this to be happening as a pastor? And da, da, da. And I'm so ornery. I, I just pretended I didn't know what they were talking about. I said, well, let's see. Now, Dave is uh, really grown so much in the Lord. He was already a Christian when he came to college, and now he's like five times as deep with the Lord. And Falake came to Christ, and she's really grown a lot in the Lord. And so the Bible requires that we marry within the faith. So what exactly is the problem? <laughs> I, I just acted like I didn't know, and because uh, I wanted to make him say it. <laughs> so um, if we're not from one blood, we got nothing. And he uh, explains, uh, quote, uh, something that you can see is in Acts 7, 1 Kings 8, 27, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, that the Lord God does not dwell in temples made by men. But the whole foreshadowing of the garden temple, the portable tabernacle in the wilderness, the more fixed temple of Solomon, Jesus Christ is called the tabernacle in John 1, 14 in the Greek, um, this whole, all of this is because God desires to dwell in a people for his own possession. And Paul covers all of that with the pagans at, in Acts 17. All right, so today let's get into, um, I'm probably going to go over since we got started 10 minutes late. And uh, I'm sorry for that, I guess. So, but I'm not going to bring forth fruit and keep you with my repentance. No. All right. So let's get into this. First thing is a lot of people, when they're hit with this, when they begin to realize that there are no gospel presentations in the entire Bible that aren't heavy on the history of Israel in quoting Old Testament scriptures and using Old Testament word images. And very, as you really get into that, you'll see that Jesus' teaching always has lots of Old Testament. When he says, I'm the vine and you're the branches, he's talking about an Old Testament concept that his audience already knew very thoroughly. When he says, I'm the door, I'm the shepherd, I'm, you know, when God is called the husband, you know, read Hosea. Shocking book. So it's not, you, people will say, well, it's because 
they were speaking to Jewish audiences. That's why I did the, took the time to, to talk about Acts 17 and Paul in Athens. No, even when Paul was speaking to people who had no background in the scriptures, he used the Old Testament scriptures and the concepts thereof because there's no gospel without them. That's, why, that's what the answer is going to be today. Why it matters is because, you know, we wonder why we're having less than gospel results. There's no no doubt about it that the church in what was West Europe was once called Christendom. Estimates are now that somewhere between two to four percent of people in Europe would claim to be Christian. And most estimates are less than half of those would be any kind of Christian that you could historically call a Christian in any kind of seriousness. Uh, today in America, 4% of people under 30 go, uh, go to church. Uh, in another generation, America will be Europe if we don't try to do something different. And we can, um, what happens a lot of times, especially, and that's why we have, you know, the blue states, red states, things, and city areas and rural areas. Sometimes people grow up in enough of a church environment that we, in Christian schools and so forth, that we think that that amounts to a lot more than it really does, but that is having almost no influence on our culture, and it's it's a it's a declining minority. And unless we uh, unless we reexamine what we're doing, uh, there's not going to be a Christian America uh, at all. When I I'm only 59 years old, or will be 59 in December. And um, when I was a kid, around 88% of Americans claimed to be Christians. Today, less than half of Americans claim to be Christians. And by any fair criteria, less than half of those have any kind of right to be calling themselves a Christian. Uh, and that's something beyond nominal Christians. So it's not a matter of their audience. It's a matter of biblical, of hermeneutical principles. When we talk about hermeneutics, we talk about what are the paradigms, what are the ways, of the glasses we look at Scripture through. And it's because if you don't tell that Jesus is the historical fulfillment of everything in Israel, if you don't see him as the fulfillment of the law and, and all the things we're going to try to delve into today, then you don't actually have a, a biblically rooted Jesus you don't actually have a biblically rooted gospel. And there are zero presentations of, of any significant truth in the New Testament that doesn't rely heavily on the word pictures, the types, and actual quotes from the Old Testament. There are certain books, including Matthew, John, First uh, John, Jude, Hebrews, and Revelation, that almost every line assumes the readers thoroughly know the Old Testament. And you really can't get to know those books if you're not willing to get to know the Old Testament. That's why I always start young Christians in Genesis 1 and Matthew 1 and say, read a few chapters in the New Testament and the Old, and when you get to the end, start over. I don't generally do the Gospel of John thing. I just say, start in Matthew, read to the end of Revelation, start over. Start in Genesis, read to the end of Malachi, start over. And uh, do that. By the time you've done that five, seven, eight times, then the Bible will start to come into that kind of focus that you get like at the doctor's office when he's, the eye doctor, when he's going better 
now better and you're still all fuzzy better where's the chart you know, <laughs> you know uh, it it will you know there's a clarity to scripture that's a basic doctrine of systematic theology that when you are really at a heart that's seeking God, willing to know God, willing to do his will, and you've given him your whole heart, right from your first few times in the scriptures, some things will start to be clear to you. Uh, and they will clarify progressively as you continue to study. Every time through scriptures, will the lights will come on. So um, it's not a matter of the audience. It's a matter of the principles. Now, I really don't have time to develop this, but maybe I'll do a week on that next week. I don't know. Next week, John and I are switching uh, places. Uh, he's teaching at 930. I'm teaching at 1030 because I'm speaking at 9 o'clock at Arbor Church a block away. Our good friends over there have asked me to come do a presentation So, on uh, Whiz Kids and what we do in the inner city and so forth. So they, they uh, have been good friends for many, many years. They're what's called a Reformed Baptist con congregation. They follow the Baptist Confession of 1689, and um, they were a very successful uh, suburban church in in uh, Beaver Creek. And they decided to move into the inner city. And uh, thank God for that. So let's look at uh, what we're talking about in terms of why. The first reason is because there are five tributaries that we want to talk to. We're not limited to this five. Five that I want to address maybe in the next couple of weeks. I, I really wanted to end this series today. Uh, five tributaries to Christ that declare the biblical Jesus. Now, I want to give us a kind of a, a metaphor that might help us. I've been thinking a lot about the Mississippi River lately. Why do I think about such crazy things? Well, for one thing, it's the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Heart, you, when you're an old guy, 10 years is just like nothing. Uh, for some of you, you were probably pretty young when that happened. Secondly, I listen to this crazy radio station on Saturday nights. If I happen, I only listen to the radio if I happen to be driving in the car. But when I'm driving in the car, there's a station called WYSO out of um, Yellow Springs. And they play all kinds of crazy genres of music. And they happened to do a show uh, on uh, music that was inspired by the Mississippi River and that came out of the Mississippi River culture. You know, jazz and so many other types of American music kind of grew up along the Mississippi. So I want you to think about this. The Mississippi Delta is an area of about 100 miles where everything the Mississippi River comes through, okay? The, the, you know, when people say, well, why would you build, rebuild New Orleans? Uh, who would build a city underwater, <laughs> you know, and so forth? New Orleans has always been a very important city because if we go up from the Mississippi Delta, the Mississippi River is a series of rivers that, that drains the entire uh, central part of the United States from the Appalachian Mountains to the, uh, what's the mountains out west? Uh, Rocky Mountains, thank you. <laughs> Geography. Um, and uh, I wouldn't even know how many rivers, you know, the Ohio, the Allegheny, the Monongahela, the five rivers that go through Dayton, uh, all in rivers that go all the way up to Minnesota and Wisconsin and west as far as Colorado and places like this, all of them drain into the Mississippi River. 
Now, I want to see, now, after they go to the Mississippi River, they actually go out to the Gulf of Mexico. And in the scriptures, the coastlands and the sea is actually a metaphor for all the nations. And I want to use just a metaphor as if Christ is the Mississippi Delta in, in terms of his role in the scriptures. Every tributary of the Old Testament finds its way into and through Christ. The key to understanding your Old Testament is to say, how can I find Christ in the Old Testament? In Jesus' very first speech after the resurrection in Luke 24, 27, when he's talking to the two uh, men on the, on the road to Emmaus, uh, Cleopas and Simon, uh, not Simon Peter, he says to them, uh, O foolish of heart and slow to believe all that the scriptures have said. And it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained everything concerning himself in the whole scripture. Man, believe me, if I could ever get the audios for that, I would give my house, my retirement. I'd probably, I don't know what I'd give. I'd give everything. I'd be like, well, wow, those, that has to be a pretty good message. <laughs> like to be able to put that on our podcast. So um, he then later that night appears to the disciples in the upper room. In, and in verse 44 of Luke 24, it says that he explained to them, he opened their minds to understand the scripture implying their minds were closed in terms of their understanding of Scripture until they were opened in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. There's a veil that lies over the heart of Israel, and that veil is removed for us in Christ. And so if you want to see Jesus accurately, you must start to, to see him in, from Genesis to Malachi. He is, in, in our metaphor, the Mississippi Delta, and all the major themes in, of, the, of the books of the law, of what we now call the other historical books, what we call the wisdom books, and the prophets. We divide the Old Testament our, in our day to four major scriptures, or four major sections. The books of Moses, or the Pentateuch, the other historical books, the, wisdom, the five wisdom books, and the uh, five major prophets and 12 minor prophets, which normally count as just the prophets, uh, and then subdivide A and B. But the, the, the Jews of Jesus' day divided it uh, with an acronym Tanakh, which meant the Torah. Uh, basically, they saw the five books of Moses. Then they called Joshua through Malachi the prophets, except for the wis what we call the wisdom literature, which they called the poetry. And so um, what Jesus is actually saying in Luke 24 is that everything in all those books is about me. So using our metaphor, let's look at the delta, but let's look at the fact that the delta must empty into the Gulf Coast. If you took the Mississippi River out of the equation for what the Gulf Coast is, it would not be the place of shrimping, Bubba, the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company, and uh, 
it would not be uh it would be nothing like it is today okay because it needs uh ironically the unsalt of the freshwater mississippi to come into the salt water the uh gulf of mississippi and it creates uh it creates a uh, brackish culture uh that uh allows for hundreds of different kinds of industry including oil and shrimp and all sorts of other things now so let's look at these five the first one is the last atom sometimes called the second atom paul talks about this in romans 5 12 through 14 and he talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. Now that is a quote from Genesis 2, 7. So even Paul is you, quoting from the Old Testament all the time. Hundreds of quotes in Paul from the Old Testament. Rethinking the whole Old Testament in the light of Christ. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now... What's important to understand is that in Daniel 7:13 in one of in the days of Jesus the Israelites were expecting Ben Adam the son of man based on Daniel 7:13 all Israelites talked about the coming of the son of man that was the primary messianic title that Jews used so um The um, Jesus comes along, and people today mistakenly, because we just have these Greek modernized glasses that we've been taught to read scripture with, they say, oh, Jesus wasn't that clear that he was Messiah. Wow. I shouldn't be like that, because people really believe that. I'm sorry, that the 95% of Bible-believing Christians believe that Jesus wasn't that clear about being Messiah. The problem is he calls himself Ben-Adam 27 times in the book of Matthew. He calls himself Ben-Adam 13 times in the Gospel of Mark, 26 times in Luke, and 12 times in John. You can count them for yourself if you uh, just put in the phrase son of man and solve for that and count them. Maybe I'm off one or two. <laughs> one direction or another, I doubt it. So, um, now, why this is important is, of course, Christ is very clearly teaching that he is God in human flesh, and he's going to build his church, and there will be the body of Christ. So, the, if you will, he's the Mississippi Delta, but there will be this Gulf of Mexico called the body of Christ. And he will live in and dwell in and work through that body. That's the whole point of his address at the Last Supper that's contained in John 13, 14, 15, and 16. He's saying, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. And he's saying, you're going to continue my mission. And greater works than I do will you do. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll do this, and he'll do that, and he'll do this, and he'll do that. And if we're not seeing the Holy Spirit doing these things, then we're, then we're really off in our mission. So it's, it's very, very important, and I uh, 
hate to be or tell you a story from my ornery childhood, but I was not a Christian until I was 17, and I was particularly bitter at my father and angry and rebellious and not the kind of person you'd want your kid hanging out with. And uh, I won't give you any details, but uh, on the, my parents uh, got the left foot of fellowship at our particular church, and so we, we traveled a long way to church and back, and and uh, you know my parents had a Christian bookstore, and they were kind of radical Christian people, and I, they didn't become Christians until I was 12, and I called them Jesus freaks, and I thought they were wacko. But, uh, you know, I'm, so they would make me go to church, and I'd be in the back of the station wagon, and I would, and so one time I particularly sang this song that I knew would irritate my dad, and um, I was mispronouncing a certain line of the sound that made it similar to a swear word. And I knew that he would think that I was using that swear word instead of what the song actually said, because I was kind of halfway pronouncing it. And my dad only lost his temper real bad at me two times. But when we got home from church, he beat the snot out of me. And uh, because I aggravated him all the way there and back. I want you to understand Jesus is aggravating the religious people of his day quite intentionally when he calls himself Ben Adam, he is saying, I'm the Messiah. I am God incarnate. Worship me. If, if you don't think that the, the Bible pr proves that Jesus is God, that's what he was on trial for. And when they said, tell us, are you the Messiah? because they couldn't get any witnesses to twist his words or whatever, because he taught openly and in the marketplaces. He says, ego a me, I am. He's quoting Exodus 3.14. And then he goes on to quote Daniel 7.13. Just in case you missed the address of what I've told you hundreds of times throughout my ministry, you will see thus Ben Adam coming on the clouds of glory and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. You betcha. Now, the trial of Jesus broke every mosaic law on how to conduct a trial because you weren't, we have a Fifth Amendment in this country primarily because the great British jurist William Blackstone, who was a thorough Calvinistic Christian and wrote all the, Blackstone's commentaries are still the basis for all of American law. He, uh, one of his concepts was based on the Old Testament scriptures is you cannot incriminate yourself. So they broke the Mosaic law when they said, you've heard the blasphemy. What need do we have of witnesses? We're going to forget what the scriptures say about witnesses and the mouth. No one can be condemned to a capital crime without two or three witnesses. And we're just going to kill this guy based on his own witness. So believe me, obviously that was illegal. And against the, you know, they pretended to follow the laws of Moses, which Jesus, and he aggravated them, not only by saying Ben Adam, but he kept aggravating them on purpose by saying, you're not following the law of Moses. And in his final trial, he proved it to the nth degree. They totally threw out everything about the law of Moses because they were like, we got to kill this guy. We don't care if we're doing it legally or not. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I love, you know, 
don't you, you know, you're going to Jerusalem. Don't you know that Herod is visiting Jerusalem with Pilate right now and, and that they're looking for you? And he goes, go tell that fox today and tomorrow. <laughs> I preach the gospel and the third day I'll reach my goal. He, you, I guess he wasn't backing down. Um, secondly, Jesus is the law of God. Now we're like, oh, wait a minute. Like how, you know, we're our modern Greekified way of thinking, uh, I don't see then commandments written all over his robes or something, you know. Uh, Jesus is the law of God. In Romans, Paul is uh, basically saying that the problem is the Gentiles who have no law uh, and the, are no better off than the Jews who having the law don't do the law. They're supposed to be enlightened. They're supposed to be carrying the truth of God in the, the, the Old Testament, and uh, mo most of the Pharisees and scribes got this uh, throughout most of Israel's history, unfortunately not at the time of Christ, that the point of Israel was that uh, in uh, Deuteronomy, do I have Deuteronomy there? Well, I've got Deuteronomy 4.8 listed, but I don't have it. I can only put what I can fit on two sides. Deuteronomy 4.8, Moses says, what other nation has this great law? a light to the Gentiles. The point of Israel was to mediate the presence of God to the lost, blind pagans around it, and to do so by showing the superior wisdom contained in the law. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, you know, it's interesting that the... the, that the uh, uh, the sexual revolution of the 60s gave way to the divorce culture of the 70s. And we, you know, we can't see the wisdom of thou shalt not commit adultery. Every kid you meet today is broken. Div the, a, a, a divorce has become a way of life in our country. And hundreds and hundreds of kids' lives have been trashed by it. And they're growing up, you know, well, we didn't get divorced and we have a pretty good marriage. Well, they're growing up surrounded by friends who are trashed and their life is trashed and they're troubled and the values of the culture have become, you know, sleep with telephone poles or whatever you want to do. So the law was supposed to make Israel a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and the truth. Now, who is called the truth in Scripture? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he's saying he's the way, he's actually saying to a Hebrew-thinking mindset, I'm the law. The law is a way of life that's a superior way of life to just doing whatever you want to do, which leads to destruction, following God's commandments. Now, no one, Jesus pointed out correctly, no one ever was saved in the Old Testament by performance-based trying to do the law. Abraham was saved by faith. The point of the law was so they could see their sin and be saved by grace. And Israel, as Paul brings out in Romans 10, he says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, meaning not in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. 
for not knowing, because they're still blind to what the scriptures are saying, even though they have them memorized, not knowing about God's righteousness, they sought to establish their own. And that was always the problem, seeking to establish your own righteousness. Now, we will uh, end there, and we will obviously do another week on the backside of this outline. Uh, but we finished the front side. Praise God. Praise God.